Good morning. Welcome to the Millennial Momentum Podcast. This is your host, Tom Alemo. I'm at Tommy Tahoe on Instagram and Twitter. And if, it's your, if you're new to the show, welcome. And really, this show is intended for people that, you know, the millennial that wants to get their life to the next level, right? You know, you want to make more money, have a better relationship, uh, get a promotion, get in better shape, run a race, go travel the world, whatever it is. Um, I think really the three things you need to be successful are a strong work ethic, a positive attitude, and a little momentum which is forward motion with energy. And you know, I hope that this show can be uh, uh, provide some momentum to you, provide some to me. I'm on the path too, and I thank you so much for joining me. So as always, you can get all the show notes, the blogs, all the extra info on millennialmomentum.net. Uh, Tommy Tahoe for me on social media. Uh, and if you like anything you heard today in the show, give me a shout on social media. I love to talk. And, and please head on over to iTunes or wherever you're listening and uh, subscribe, give a rating, uh, a review to the show. It helps so much to spread this message. So thank you for listening. Uh, but let's get into the talk track and, and the topic of today. Uh, I had a unique conversation with Mark Gober uh, about consciousness. And um, consciousness is not something that I've really spent much time thinking about, as I'm, I believe you probably haven't either. Um, but... It's an interesting conversation. It's a longer conversation than what we normally do. It's it's. I think we're on about two hours for this one, um, and we go deep and we talk about. You know, Mark has a background in business, and he's a businessman, and he, uh, you know, was involved in investment banking, in the, and in the finance world. And we talk a little bit about you know him working eighteen, twenty hour days, just some craziness there, and then we get into. You know, a life-changing event that happened uh, to him, I'll let him describe it, in 2016, that essentially um, there's a view in science that consciousness comes from the brain, and he, he's, he's questioning that. And we get into some of the scientific pieces, but at the end result, um, and towards the end of the show, it's really like, well, why, why does this matter? How does this affect us? And it's it's really all about how we can treat each other better and why we should be treating each other better and why um, you know, we're all sort of one people, as Mark would say. Um, and I, I think it's just a really refreshing take. And if that's the one thing you get from it is that, hey, you should treat the person next to you, your neighbor, a little bit better, then I think uh, Mark did his job. But you know, the book, uh, An End to Upside Down Thinking, is out for him. Check it on Amazon. He's got a lot of uh, a lot of recommendations from people that someone that was a, a two-time Nobel Peace Prize nominee, Irvin Laszlo, uh, the Pixar founder and two-time Academy Award winner, Lauren Carpenter, um, some uh, really high up people in the science world and uh, professors, New York, best, uh, New York Times bestselling authors, just some really successful people that are backing Mark here and he's got a great message. So um, again, it's a little bit longer, a little bit of a different talk track, but I think you're going to like this one a lot, especially if you like to nerd out a little bit on on uh, the scientific angle and consciousness, and if you read anything from Eckhart Tolle or get deep into philosophy and meditation, I think you're going to like this one. So without further ado, let's get into this conversation with Mark Gober. Enjoy. Mark Gober, welcome to the show, man. Thank you for having me, Tom. Man, I'm excited. We're doing the, uh, the initial... Uh, 
Zoom H5 recorder episode live in the studio. So I'm excited to uh, and excited to have you on. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> it's Got been a lot a, to talk about, Tom. Yeah, man. It's been a crazy, uh, crazy last few months putting everything together and probably a pretty interesting last few years for you, huh? Yeah, I can maybe give you the background and your listeners' yeah, the background. So I work in, in the financial business world um, going way back. So I graduated from Princeton mm-hmm. in 2008. When I got to Princeton, I wasn't sure what I wanted to study. Started off in the economics department, realized that the whole field of economics is dependent upon the assumption that we're all rational. And I'm like, hmm, are we actually all rational agents? So I decided it was like a little too theoretical for me and and didn't seem to make sense all the time. So I wanted to look around and I I was looking at the astrophysics department because it was a great department there. And it's like, I want to understand what I'm doing here and how the universe works. And it was pretty cool. So I thought about majoring in astrophysics. I was on the tennis team and I was later captain of the tennis team. It's a division one program. There's no way I could have done astrophysics as a late player as well. You were not as good as you though. Okay, I, I played. I played in college. I played D two. So. Oh wow. Okay. Not Princeton. But go on. <laughs> we, we have some things <laughs> to talk about. Have to play a match after. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'm retired. I don't know about you. You don't play anymore. Not much. Oh, I play a little bit in really? like men's league every okay. like couple weeks. Okay. So not too much though. That's all. We got to talk more about <laughs> tennis then. But anyway, you can appreciate that. Yeah, I was on the tennis track, and right. to try to switch majors into that major, it would have yeah. been tough. Yeah. So I decided to do psychology. So uh-huh. I studied behavioral economics, looking at yep. this question of rationality. Are we actually rational? And my thesis was on Daniel Kahneman's prospect theory. Okay. He wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, which yep. has become very popular. It's yeah. all about human judgment, decision-making, and right. how we have biases. Great so that was a great book. Yeah. So my thesis was on prospect theory, which was what he won the, won the Nobel Prize for, yep. looking at how we make decisions under risk. And I looked at a question okay. that he didn't address fully and I explored it. So okay. that's my background, like educationally. I went to investment banking okay. with that background. Started in July of 2008 yep. at UBS in New York. Yep. So that was right before Every, everything, oh, everything went down. <laughs> everything went down. And making things even more complicated is I worked in the group that covered financial institutions. Mm. So my clients were banks and insurance companies Ooh. and asset managers. Everything. <laughs> Everything. Your whole, your whole world crumbled. And that's right after graduating. Obviously. Right after graduating. Yeah. Started in July and things were already looking iffy around yeah. then. And then in the fall, it really it got rough. And yeah. I was at a bank that was having issues in a group that was advising the companies that were having issues. <laughs> so I wasn't sleeping. I think investment banking is normally tough, but it was an extreme situation. Yeah. Because the banks were laying people off. There weren't as many of us to do the work. Right. But we were actually really busy because all these banks and insurance companies needed to raise money or they were looking to do M&A. Right. So I was busy. Yeah. I wasn't sleeping. Whatever interests I had in astrophysics and like the universe, I wasn't thinking about them yeah. at that point. In 2010, I left and I joined my current firm where I'm currently a senior member. Okay. It's called Sherpa Technology Group and I'm based out here in Silicon Valley. Yep. I originally was in our Boston office and we do a combination of mergers and acquisitions yep. and strategic advisory, almost like a consulting firm and an investment bank put into one. Our focus is on intellectual property transactions okay. and strategy and innovation. So we work with a lot of tech companies that want to know how to optimize their innovation or monetize their patent portfolios. Yep. We just worked with a company. They have over 20,000 patents, very large global corporations. So that's one end of the spectrum. The other end is we work with startups that have really important technology. They want to patent things well because their investors are looking for that and they want to make sure they have a picket fence around their important technologies. Yeah. So you, 
not to disrupt you, but yeah. I am going to disrupt you. So you're you seem like a pretty curious guy, right? I mean, you have a lot of different, pretty dense intellectual pursuits throughout the last however many ten years, like since you were in college. Like, was that how you always were growing up too? It's a good question. I think I've always been curious about things and have asked big questions. Yeah, and I've looked at things that maybe a lot of other people weren't looking at as closely. Yeah. So I went from traditional investment banking to investment banking and strategy for intellectual property, which is related to business, but it's not something that a normal business person is looking at regularly. Right. Usually it's something that a, a lawyer or someone in the legal profession is looking yep. at. And yeah. we're taking the business angle on it. So that is a little bit off the, the traditional track yeah. in some ways. Interesting. So were you like the, the kid in class that just kept asking why and why and why or kept or asked like, Questions that were three grades above what all the other kids were thinking about. And like, if I did, it was in my head. Yeah, I wasn't. Yeah. I wasn't broadcasting it. Now I am, I guess, with my book and everything else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, cool. All right, so <laughs> so you land at Sherpa in 2010. 2010, moved to Boston, and you were you were at that same firm through 08 to 2010, and yes. like went through all of the the craziness. Went and through you all were the... sticking around, and I stuck around working yeah. hundred hour weeks or. I don't know, 120 think, hours, however. Yeah, I think 120 get. was a good week, maybe. <laughs> wow. I mean, I remember Seriously. I remember thinking to myself on certain certain weeks, first of all, I didn't have a day off for months at a time. Right. That was just commonplace. Yeah. And, and that's weekends. That's, yeah. Weekends. Holidays, yeah. Yeah. Easy. And if I got off at 2 a.m., I remember that was good because that meant I could sleep a few hours. Usually <laughs> I was going past that. And I remember one night I was finishing a document. It was basically a pitch for a bank. Yeah that they, we wanted to help them with something and we wanted to be the bank to help them. On right. It. And we were competing against others. Right. So I finished up my stuff and probably 7 a.m., left the papers on the managing director's chair, went home, walked home. I lived near Park Avenue where I worked because right. I wanted to be close by. <laughs> I got back. I was ready to like take a 30-minute nap or something, get an email from the managing director who I guess came into the office, saw the stuff on his desk, and he had comments. Went right back in. So that was just a very <laughs> typical type experience for me. Wow. That's crazy. And, and I mean, I have friends that are in investment banking. I, I hear the same of, yeah, I mean, you're you're going home at 2, 3, 4, 5 in the morning regularly, getting back in at, I don't know, 7 or 8 or 6 or I don't know what time. But, like, how do you even recover from something like that? Like, how do you – that has to drain on you, right? Like, we know how important sleep and rest is for, like, psychologically. So how do you – I, I don't know. I, I was just going on fumes. And when you've got adrenaline going and you have deadlines, yeah. you just kind of don't think. Yeah, you just got to push. You push. But I think it takes a toll on the body. And I was I was worn out, I think, yeah. physically, emotionally, mentally. Yeah. And was ready to do something a little bit different. Even though I went into something that's similar, it's, it was different than yeah. New York during the financial crisis. Man, that's intense. It was intense. That's intense. Didn't, so the people that, you know, you have to stick around a little late for your boss and you have to stay till 8 or – do something on a Saturday, like it get, get be a lot worse. And the money's great, don't get me wrong, but whew, that's a tough life to live. It's a tough life. Over time. But I chose it. It's yeah. An, I was an at-will employee. That's true. That's true. So I, I no did it. You. And I, yeah, I stuck around basically through the worst part of it. Because yeah. I think the spring of 2009 was when the market bottomed. Yep. So it was starting to recover a little bit. It still wasn't great when I left in early 2010. Yep. 
Um, but yeah, it was it was an experience that I wasn't expecting. Crazy. So, sure. All right. So then you landed at Sherpa in 2010. Right. Moved to Boston. We're yep. based there and, and, and Silicon Valley. Yep. In 2011, the firm asked me if I wanted to move to the West Coast. And right. I said, sure. And I, I've always wanted to live in California. And to be doing tech work in Silicon Valley, I think it was, would, I was excited about that. Right. In Boston, we had a lot of yeah. stuff going on. And we work with Silicon Valley clients in Boston, too. Right. But just being here, I was excited about it. Yep. So I moved out to the West Coast in in the fall of 2011, and I've been here since. Nice. Um, and as soon as I moved out here, it actually got pretty crazy in terms of the work. Yeah. I had great experience where I was able to present in front of boards of directors of publicly traded companies. I was 25, 26, wow. getting that experience. That's an advantage of being at a small firm. Yeah. The downside is that I was doing all the work. Right. But I was used to it. So it was like whatever I was doing in investment banking, um, with UBS, this was, it was not too bad. So I was learning a ton. It was great. But again, I wasn't thinking about a lot of these existential things that I had an interest in in college. Um, and over time, I, I, I always thought about the meaning of life and things like that. And yeah. the conclusion that I always came to, and we'll, this we'll get into my book, Let's do it. Yeah. was that life has no meaning. And the reason that I, I arrived at that conclusion, I was very strict about it, okay. was... I'm now deconstructing how I was thinking. I may, might not have put it this way two years ago and before. Okay. But we are conscious, like right now, I'm aware. You're aware, presumably. I think you are. I can't yeah. prove it, but I think you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I know I'm I aware. I like it. Yeah. Um, and your listeners are aware. That subjective inner experience that we call consciousness in the scientific and philosophical communities. Right. Awareness, mind. Consciousness is kind of the broad term for it. Where that comes from the brain. That's how I thought about things. Yep. So if you take that very literally, when the brain is off, when the body dies, the physical body dies, right. consciousness would then die with it. Right. And we all know physical bodies die. Right. That happens. It's just a fact of life. Yep. Therefore, any memories we had, any consciousness we had during our life is necessarily wiped out once the physical body dies. So yep. I took that literally and said, okay, well, if, if, if our memories and our consciousness die when our body dies... That means that any meaning that we ascribe to our life while we were living is also just wiped out. So we can try yeah. to create meaning while we're living and right. be happy and sad about things. But I'm like, well, that's just a rationalization because ultimately I know this sounds bleak, but I'm being realistic and we're, we're all going to die at some point. So why does anything actually mean anything? Yeah. I know it's a ble bleak, nihilistic yeah, yeah, yeah. outlook. No, no, but yeah, I, 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 I'm following the trend. Yeah, I think it's in. logical. I was logical about the way I was right. doing it, and I was strictly And this is just your thoughts, or this when you were re doing research? No, this is just my thoughts about okay. things. Okay. Because I think our, our educational system right now fosters the underlying assumptions behind what I concluded. Okay. Which is, oh, of course we're conscious because of our brain. It's not even something we think about usually. No, you, you don't get taught. You don't Either even get way. taught it, but it's it's just so assumed. But it is well, maybe maybe you do get taught it because when you go over like, all right, you know, your heart is where like you you get love for someone, and your lungs are where you breathe, and your brain is where you think about things, and where like you know it, it they imply I think when you're growing up that the brain is is where your consciousness lies, and that's how you how you're aware. And all right. <clears throat> But it wasn't even in my psychology classes something that we were questioning. Mm, okay. It was. I think it was an assumption so deeply embedded that we were just talking about things like 
how the brain works, but not questioning this basic thing of does the brain produce consciousness at all? Right. I had never even thought to, to question that. Yeah. So I had this bleak outlook on life. Okay. Wasn't necessarily looking for a new outlook because I thought I knew the answer, yep. which is that life doesn't have meaning and we can run around and do things, but ultimately, unfortunately, we will not live at a certain point. Right. And then things changed very dramatically, not in a planned way. Okay. I was listening to podcasts in the health area and yep. the next one in the queue one time was a woman who described being able to communicate with dead people mm. and like non-physical forms of consciousness, yep. very outlandish things. And she didn't sound like she was lying. It didn't have a major effect on me when I heard it. But at the end, she talked about other podcasts that, that talk about these things. Yeah. So I just would put them on in the car and listen to other people. And I got to the point after about three weeks of just listening to these podcasts where, wait, how are all these people independently describing the same thing? Mm. They were coming at it from different angles and they were all having these experiences that one might call paranormal. Okay. Paranormal if consciousness comes from the brain. If consciousness doesn't come from the brain, these things are not paranormal, but we'll get into that. Okay. So I'm, I, I got to the point where I'm like, oh my God, what's going on here? There's so many people who are talking about these things. I was never taught about them. These are not things people discuss in the business world. So these are things like the idea that our consciousness doesn't die when our body dies. Right. Or we all have psychic abilities that are sometimes subtle, but for some people they're immense. Right. How did I not know about this stuff? Yeah, and yeah, I yeah. thought it was all fraudulent. I decided to look into it. And I realized that there is a huge body of scientific evidence that I'd never been exposed to before. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of which comes from the US government. We'll talk about that. Some of which comes from Princeton. Okay. While I was there, the former Dean of Engineering, yeah. Dr. Robert John, who passed away recently, they were running a lab on this stuff and it was very under the radar. I didn't even know about it. Wow. So there are some very credible people and I mentioned them in my book okay. who study these things. I decided to experiment with things of, okay, well, if these psychics can do things, why don't I experiment and, and try to find the best ones I can okay. and talk to like 10 of them. And okay. I'll probably talk to even more people that do, do alternative things. Okay. And not everything they said was like, would blow me away, but there like were- What would you ask them? Well, many times I would just like have them like, hey, what comes up? Yeah. You know, because there's things come to them. Okay. Um, oh, about you. About they me. They would tell you about like who you are, your who, past or Yes. Okay. Or things about me. There was one instance of- it, it was a woman who specializes in, in psychic abilities related to health. Okay. What I've learned is that there are people who have specific talents within the psychic realm. Who knew? Who knew? I didn't know. This is called uh, medical mediumship. Okay. That's the term or, or, or medical psychic. And a few weeks before I talked to her, I mean, I, I had like, like a, a rash on my jaw um, and it went away. I didn't even think about it. It was yeah. like kind of a bumpy thing. I think it was from like shaving or something. Went away. Okay. Right. And she's like, okay, this is kind of weird, Mark. I want you to go in front of the mirror. And this was on my left side when I had, she goes, I want you to point under your left ear around your jawline. Uh, they, whatever consciousness she's communicating with, she's like, they're, they're seeing like some kind of inflammation, like white bumps there. And I'm like, oh my God, that's exactly where I had this thing. This is a woman on the other side of the country. She knows nothing about me. Wait, this is on the phone? On the phone. On the phone, dude. Oh, and it's not a, it's not like a video chat. Not it's a video. literally a phone call. This is a phone call. <laughs> okay. I was gonna say I thought she might have seen. Something. No, that's a good point. Thank you for clarifying. No, this is on the phone, and this is how Ooh. things work. Because as we'll talk about, <laughs> consciousness, as okay. I have now come to think is is true, is exists beyond space and time. Okay. So these things again are not paranormal under that context, yeah. but under our everyday living, 
I would have things like that happen where there's no way she could have known. I mean, only people who had seen me during that few week period would have even known it was there, but they might not have even seen it. Right. She couldn't have found a picture, right? So there are things like this that are that were not explainable okay. repeatedly. And less. this is less about my own personal anecdotes, yeah. but it was matching a lot of the research I was finding. Okay. So my point here is that it led me into a very intense year of research okay. of like, I need to figure this out because yeah. – if this is real, I have to rethink all of my assumptions about life and meaning and what we're all doing here and, and that. Okay. So it was around November 2016, around Thanksgiving in 2016, a few months into my getting into this. Yeah. And I kind of freaked out. I didn't go home for Thanksgiving. I decided to go to Muir Woods for a few days. I, I drove back and forth between here, between San Francisco yeah, yeah. and the woods. But I'm like, oh my, what do I do? Right. Because I'm, I'm being exposed to this whole world. And I know that most of my communities, my social community, family, they are not thinking about these things. Yeah. And if this is true, we have to rethink our own existence. How am I going to exist in this world? Yeah. It was so disorienting. I've recovered from that. I'm, I'm totally fine yeah, yeah, now. Yeah. But it, it, it was just like a jarring thing. Right. So I, I just was researching over and over again, like reading all the books I could because I wanted to re, re-understand my life. Okay. And as I was doing it, I was telling different friends about it. So I'd be like, hey, I've read this study from the U.S. government where they're saying this psychic ability is real and it's like a declassified document. You know, things like that, which mm. we'll, we'll talk about. Okay. And these are the implications. And and what people were telling me was, first of all, they were extremely interested. And these were highly educated people yeah. working in the business world, former athletes, okay. whatever, yeah, yeah. who had never been exposed to it. And they were like riveted by it. Oh, my God. Well, tell me more about it. Okay. And over time, people were telling me things like they were thinking about their lives differently and their lives were improving because their fear of death was going away, Wow. for example. Okay. So I realized at a certain point that something was getting through, number one. And number two, I was super passionate about it. Right. So clearly. Clearly, yeah. yeah. Last July, July 2017, the okay. 4th of July weekend, it was a four-day weekend. Yep. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to stay in my apartment in San Francisco at the time in Hayes Valley. Yep. I'm not going to leave. I'm going to write mm. and just see what happens. Okay. So I had an outline ready to go. I knew the structure because I would researched so much. I knew what the main categories were. Okay. I sat down to write. I would get up at 7 a.m. Yep. And I would go to bed at 1 a.m. Because I'm not in my investment banking shape, I I couldn't do an all nighter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I started shutting down. Yeah, so yeah. I did that four days in a row, okay. where I just was writing nonstop. You did all day writing. All day writing. I remember FaceTiming with people, maybe the Fourth of July or whenever the Tuesday was of that four day stretch. Yep. And they were like, "Are you okay? You do not look well." Because I hadn't worked out. I because I'm used to working out. Yeah, I hadn't, you're like, not shaved. You're not showering. You're had probably not eating much. Like I wasn't eating. No very sunlight. Much. <laughs> they, people yeah. were worried. They yeah. said, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm fine, but I need to finish this book. So I finished more than half the book that weekend. Wow. And over the next few weekends, in between pages. work. I mean, how, the yeah. book's like pretty thick. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, like it's around 300, 300 or so. so. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, it was done. You yeah. know, I came out of July 2017. I had a book. Yeah. I'm like, what do I do with this? I got to get this out. I right. want to publish it. I don't right. need people to pay for it. This is so important that I want to get it out. Okay. I got two scientists to look at it who are authors and, and pretty prominent in their in their fields. And yep. they both said that I should get the book to a mainstream audience. Okay. So I got positive feedback, which was great because I was doing all this on my own in in isolation. Yeah. And you were like, I, you wanted to write the book before you knew if you got a publisher, before you knew if it would be a – I mean, you, you kind of A-B tested with some friends, but you didn't like – see if it was marketable or anything like that. You just wanted to write the book because you thought it was 
worth writing and worth reading. You got it. You got okay. it. I, it's not like I planned on being an author right. or planned on being a public person. I actually right. never wanted either of those things. Right. It wasn't something I was thinking about. And interestingly, the first psychic I ever talked to, she, she was like, yeah, the, the beings are saying that you're going to bring information to the world through writing. And I'm like, okay, she's maybe not right about certain things. Yeah. Because I'm not bringing information to the world and I'm not writing. Yeah. Well, here I you mean, are. I mean, who knows? Self-fulfilling prophecy. I don't know. But it's interesting she said that. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> All right. So let's – maybe we can dive into some of the, the thoughts and theories that you talk about in the book and where the research comes from. I know you mentioned like some of the U.S. government research papers. I know you read – I don't even know how many dozens, hundreds of books on the topic. Yeah. So maybe we can talk about some of like the key findings that you have. It's a great idea. So the name of the book, which we haven't talked about yet, yep. it's called An End to Upside Down Thinking. Mm. And the subtitle is Dispelling the Myth that the Brain Produces Consciousness and the Implications for Everyday Life. So earlier we were talking about this assumption that I had, which yep. is that consciousness comes from the brain. Right. And what I'm saying in this book is that that assumption is wrong. And right. that's the upside down thinking. Okay. Okay. So what I do in the book is I contrast what's known as materialism, and I'll define that because it's, it's an important term, with an alternative, okay. which puts consciousness, consciousness in a different place. Materialism is the scientific philosophy that underlies most of Western thinking, okay. which says that 13.8 billion years ago, there was a big bang. Yep. It filled the universe with matter. When I say matter, I mean stuff like the table, like yeah. physical stuff, atoms. Right. You've got atoms all over the universe. And when you have enough atoms in the universe, they're bound to interact. Yep. When they interact, that's called chemistry. Okay. When you have enough random chemical interactions in this huge universe, you're bound through chance and randomness to end up with a self-replicating molecule, among other types of molecules. Okay. But a self-replicating molecule, that's like DNA. Yeah, okay. Okay? So you end up with DNA because you have a lot of random reactions. Yep. And DNA leads to the evolution of a human being and other types of beings. Okay. The human being evolves to have a brain and then magically consciousness pops out of the brain. So this is materialism, which says that we start with matter. Yep. Okay. We end up with, we go to chemistry, biology, brains, consciousness. Okay. Matter creates consciousness through a brain. Okay. That's materialism. Okay. What I'm arguing in the book is that materialism is, is not correct. Now I'm not saying we should throw out biology and neuroscience and chemistry, okay. but I'm saying, I'm arguing that they should be recontextualized. So instead of saying that consciousness comes at the end, that matter creates consciousness. I'm saying consciousness is first, it's primary. Mm. So, so it, it came before, before anything? Yes, so this is a tricky topic because now we're getting into the question of time and is time linear? That's a different topic that I talk about in the book. Well, I, I would argue- we, that, I think I wanna talk about that. Okay, <laughs> yeah, I, I, the notion of linear time I think is, is a human construct and time doesn't actually exist in the way we think it does. Okay. So when you ask me, does it come before? I'm always hesitant to ask, to answer it in a traditional way because that's the question of, of before and after is from like our limited perspective, which sees time in a linear way. Okay. But the basic answer to your question is yes. Okay. Okay. And so, so matter, the material world is an experience within consciousness. Okay. So what I'm arguing, and other people argue this too, is that consciousness is the basis of all reality existing beyond space and time. Okay. And all this physical stuff that we see is just an experience of consciousness. So our body and our brain is related to consciousness. It's a vehicle through which consciousness is having an experience. Okay. Okay, so that's ups that's the reversal of the brain produces consciousness right. versus consciousness is experiencing itself through a brain. And I've heard, I've heard, I don't have 
one one thousandth of the of the research that you've done on this, but I've heard things like, you know, we're all um, what is it, spiritual beings having a human interaction or something of that sort. Yeah. Where it's like we're all the theory I think is like we're all there's one spirit that we're all tied to and we're just in a human body kind of living off of that one spirit of consciousness. I guess that's how I think I've interpreted it, but I don't – you're shaking your head. No, I know no. I'm wrong. No, no, no. No, but... the, the way you're saying it is – that is basically where I come out as well. Okay. Uh, Interesting. That's the way you put it. I, I tend not to use the word spirit or spiritual because there are so many connotations associated with that. Okay. Because like, if I – if like I'd, religion or – Yeah. If I'd heard that word two and a half years ago, I probably would have stopped listening to this podcast. Right. So I'm very sensitive to those words because okay. they have – you know. But what you're saying is, is where I'm coming out is that – there's one underlying consciousness that's the basis of reality yep. and it's having all kinds of experiences and the body is like a vehicle or something for it. Yeah. There's an analogy that I use in the book that I really like from Dr. Bernardo Castro, a very smart philosopher who, okay. who agrees with the stance. He says, think of reality as a stream of water, okay? Where okay. water represents consciousness. Okay. Each of us is like a whirlpool, a localization of consciousness, but the whirlpool's made of water consciousness. Right. We're having these localized experiences that seem separate because they're localized in a whirlpool, but they're part of the broader stream. Right. So what happens if my whirlpool opens up a little bit and lets in water from another whirlpool? That might be like a telepathic ability. Mm. That's like consciousness from someone else entering my consciousness, even though it's all one consciousness. But it's like the whirlpool opening up. Okay. Okay. Or what happens when the whirlpool dissolves and stops being a whirlpool? That would be like the physical body dying and just consciousness transitioning into the broader stream, changing form. Mm. So that's okay. an analogy that, that I use to, that. to frame things. When we think about these things that are paranormal, survival of bodily death, meaning consciousness survives, it's not paranormal under that framework. It's what you would expect because everything's consciousness. And psychic abilities, it's the same thing. It's not paranormal if everything is consciousness. But then wouldn't everyone be psychic? Yes. And that's the, an argument that I do make in the book. And we'll, we should talk about the evidence for that. Okay. And I want to hear it. Uh, yeah. So I don't want to take no, it. I want to derail no, no, you from wherever you're going. Talk, we're going to talk about that. But I okay. want to lead up to it because. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's the, that's the basic framework that I'm arguing is okay. that materialism, matter, creates consciousness. I follow that. Okay. I is don't, it right? I don't I – not that I've spent a lot of time thinking about it, but I, I definitely follow where your head's at. Okay. Now the question is, well – we all know the brain is related to consciousness, and I'm not arguing the brain is not related to it. Okay. What, what I think most of the scientific community is doing, and most people probably in day-to-day -day life, are they're assuming that, that consciousness comes from the brain because consciousness is related to the brain. Yeah. Okay, so if someone gets in a car accident, they damage part of their brain, then let's say they damage their visual cortex, which is the part of the brain responsible for vision, yep. then they can't see as well. So right. you can say, oh, well, that obviously... You damage that part of the brain. Their conscious experience changes in this way. The brain's producing consciousness. Can't you see? The, the fallacy there is a logical one. Right. Which is in statistics, they say correlation does not imply causation. Yep. Just because two things are related doesn't mean that one always causes the other. It right. could. Right. So an example, again, Dr. Bernardo Castro, we had lots of fires here in Northern California. Mm -hmm. Okay. And with a large fire, many firefighters show up. Okay. The size of the fire is correlated with the number of firefighters. Mm -hmm. Yes. Do we assume that the firefighters caused the fire because they were there? 
No. We don't. Right. They co-occur every time there's a big fire. There are a lot of firefighters. Right. Okay. So I'm just framing this logically. That, okay. That, co- that correlation and causation are not the they're same. They're not yeah. the same. For sure. So it's equally possible, not looking at any science, just we know there's a relationship between the brain and the consciousness, that the brain is more like an antenna. Okay. Or a filtering mechanism. Okay. That is processing some consciousness that's not in the body. Okay. And in that case, we would also see a strong correlation. Yeah. Okay, so, th- so th- I'm just framing the logic here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what, what the science to me suggests the latter, that the brain is, an antenna is a very crude metaphor, but it's one that's easy to interpret. If I damage the antenna on, on a television set, the TV show you're watching might be screwed up on your screen. Right. But the TV didn't produce the signal. So the brain you're saying is the way that, it's the part of the body that, I don't know, kind of receives the message of, of consciousness. Yes. In a way. I, I think that's a really good way to put like it. Like that's what an antenna does. I, that's kind of how. Yeah. It's, it's sort of like a receiver or a transceiver because it can transmit as well. Right. And the way the brain is configured will impact the way you have a conscious experience. Okay. But the consciousness itself is unaffected by anything. It's just having different experiences through this antenna. Okay. It's a very big, crude way of talking about it. Okay. Okay. So I, I like the I like the whirlpool metaphor. I like that water metaphor. I can picture that in my head. Yeah. So I'm when I go back to things, I'm probably going to ask about how that okay. relates to that. So how does the whirlpool yeah. relate to this? This How does the whirlpool relate to the, like the psychic piece? Okay. So let's talk about some examples. Okay. This might be the best way to do it. Yeah. yeah. And this is what my it's book does. me out. I'm not going to be able to sleep <laughs> tonight. <laughs> It freaked me out in the beginning, and then it ultimately it's a very comforting thing. Yeah. So it is. I'm excited to talk about also the, the end game, the like where your head's at about everything. Okay. Yeah. So my book is divided into multiple sections, but I have two sections that are just devoted to evidence. I talk about quantum physics, which is its own topic. Yeah. Um, that's related to this, which is. Oh, I want to talk about that too. We should talk about it. Maybe we should talk about that before we get into the psychic abilities. And when you say cool. quantum physics, this is actually something that I did want to talk to you about, and I, I wrote it down and, and forgot to bring it up earlier, but here we are. Okay. So when I think of quantum physics, I think about maybe uh, more popularized terms like the law of attraction or like um, I think about you know like Wayne Dyer, the power of intention. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. confident you probably read that or you're familiar. Yeah. Um, and I actually think that there's a lot of truth to that. And I have no scientific knowledge of it, but I feel very strongly about things that you can see in your head, you write it down, you visualize it, you say it out loud, and you can almost, you still have to work hard in a, you know, whatever it is, say you want to be an Olympic athlete, you still have to work hard and put in the hours and swim and do all that stuff. But saying it out loud and you can almost kind of speak it into an existence in a sense, I believe very firmly in that. Would, what is that? Yeah. When you so say quantum I, physics, is that in the same realm or is it completely different? So I don't make the direct. Um, like, I'm yeah. not saying that quantum physics is the reason that those things might be real. Okay. I, I'm actually taking it, I'm being more conservative about it. Okay. It might be, but okay. I don't think we're at the point where scientifically we can say that that's exactly how it works. Okay. And I, I, I agree with you. A lot of people talk about, like, they use the word quantum when, when we're talking about intention and law of attraction. Right. The way I use it in the book is to set up the, this really important idea that our everyday perceptions are a terrible descriptor of reality, or they're, they're not doing a very good job of showing us what reality is. Okay. Our, our perceptions show us a sliver of reality, an approximation. 
which is like Newtonian physics, which is you drop an apple, it falls to the ground, gravity, very basic things. Right. Newtonian physics is a good approximation for how things work. Our eyes are a pretty good approximation for how things work, although we only see a very small portion of the electromagnetic spectrum. There's all kinds of light we don't see. Right. But so quantum physics versus Newtonian physics, that's the, the distinction I draw. Okay. Quantum is totally counterintuitive. Newtonian is very intuitive. It just like makes sense. So some of the things that are counterintuitive about quantum mechanics which was conceived like in the early 1900s. This has been around for a while, but it's yeah. so mind blowing that it's not into in our everyday life. We right. don't think about it. It's a minor, it's, the, it's like tiny. It's not mainstream at all. It's mainstream scientifically, but you know, in our day-to-day -day jobs, are not we thinking to the about quantum? Not Joe, no. No, yeah. no. So there are a few things that I talk about. I think the two most important for our conversation, one is known as entanglement. Okay. And Albert Einstein, hated entanglement. He called it spooky action at a distance and he tried to disprove it because it, it screwed up some of his theories. Basically, entanglement says that two particles, two physical things that are physically distant from another, um, they, their behavior mirrors one another instantaneously. So by altering one, the other one's altered in a correlated way at okay. the same instant. The problem for Einstein was he thought that the speed of light was the fastest anything could travel, which is really fast but it's not instantaneous. Right. So the instantaneous nature of this connection implies that there might actually be a connection that we're not seeing. So okay. when we talk about like telepathic abilities or you think of somebody mm. and then they text you. Yeah. Dr. Dean Radin, who's at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, he calls that, he has a book called Entangled Minds. Mm -hmm. So he takes this concept of entanglement and says, maybe we can imply it to consciousness. Mm. And it does fit in with this whirlpool idea for all part of the same stream of water or stream of consciousness, then we're by definition entangled. Yeah. I'm not saying that is definitely true, but here we had this phenomenon of entanglement and we have these weird consciousness phenomena. Maybe there's a relationship. That's okay. all I'm saying. Okay. The other one that's more directly related to consciousness is maybe more mind blowing. It's about how the observer is affecting reality. And this is probably what you're referring to when you talk about Wayne Dyer and, and power of attention. Okay. So the, the basic design of the experiment, it's, it's called the double slit laser experiment. It's kind of complicated to Double laser? Double slit laser experiment. Oh, double slit laser. Okay. And what's found in that experiment, and I don't think this is even controversial in the physics community in terms of what the results show. Basically, a particle that's like physical matter, yep. it behaves like a wave of probability. Meaning okay. that, you know, when this table, this table is right here right now. There's no probability that it's 50% here, 50% in the conference room over there. It's 100% right. here. Yes. Yet we're seeing particles of matter showing a probabilistic characteristic, meaning they're not in one place. They're like maybe here, maybe there. Okay. So that's weird on its own. How is it that a physical particle, like a photon, which is a particle of light, how is that acting like a wave? Okay. That's weird. And this is the weirdest part, is that when the experimenters put a measuring device and they look at how the particle is, is moving, whether which slit it goes through in the experiment, yeah. when they look the particle behaves like a particle. Hmm. It the wave-like probabilities go away and it collapses into one thing. The table's in this room. It's not why maybe is, in this room. Why is that? This is the big question. It's like hmm. one of the skeletons in the closet for, for physics. Hmm. How is it that the act of observing is changing the behavior of physical matter? It's a big issue. Hmm. So when we think about consciousness as being a primary force in the universe, it actually lines up. I'm not saying we're there yet scientifically, but... Consciousness is kind of directing right. where matter is going. So meaning 
the, that the, you well no you say yeah right? so I mean the act of observing which is not right. a physical thing right is changing the behavior of a physical particle so that's when you go back to you think of someone and then they they happen to text you or it, it could. something like that it could or it could be something even more profound which is that all physical reality exists in a state of probability until it is consciously made to happen. Hmm. Which is, again, this idea that consciousness is kind of creating things. I don't think we're there yet scientifically to, to make that leap that I just made. Right. But it's one that people are talking about. And there have been some studies recently at the Institute of Noetic Sciences of, okay, well, we can test this because there's a huge debate in science about it. Right. Is it consciousness that's collapsing the wave function, meaning taking a wave of probability and making it into this one finite thing? Yeah. Is it consciousness or is it the measuring device? Is it because we're shining light on it? And that somehow changes the behavior. It's not known. So Dr. Dean Radin, he runs that he's, first of all, he's he's been affiliated with Princeton, AT&T Bell Labs. He's worked with the US government on psychic phenomena. He's one of the world's leader, world's leading experts on this. He took meditators and said, okay, I want you to put your mind to the experiment. So we're, okay. we're taking away the measuring device. Okay. And what happens? They have a very, very slight effect on how this, on the, the wave-like behavior. Okay. He says, okay, well, maybe the person's like body heat in the room is causing that. Wait, to wait, 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 S say that again. So you have people meditating. You take a meditator, someone who's like very good at calming their mind and okay. you ask them mentally to have an effect on this experiment. Okay. And they're able to do it. That the wave like behavior mm. is, is less. So, okay. which is what you would expect if this were real, that consciousness is somehow affecting the behavior of the particle. Okay. He had then people, he said, okay, well, maybe the reason that, that we saw that small effect is that they were in the same room and their body heat was having some you know, issue. So let's take people that are on the other side of the world. Okay. And totally remote from the lab. Same thing. Ask people to put their mental intention. And this is like from a phone call or something. Like they're not near, they're not in the same. They're not in the same, sometimes not in the same country. Okay. He's doing this in Petaluma and he's got people all over the world running the study. And what happens, okay. the same thing happens where people are having an effect on the wave-like behavior. So th these studies haven't gotten out there much because it's so controversial. Mm. It's suggesting that consciousness is having an effect on the physical reality we're in. Mm. That shouldn't happen according to materialism. No. Materialism says consciousness comes from the brain. It is just a byproduct and it has no effect on the world around us. Right. Now, this aligns with certain studies that I talk about in Chapter 8 of my book, a phenomenon known as psychokinesis. Okay which is the ability for, for the mind to affect physical matter, which sounds a lot like what this quantum physics experiment's showing. Right. So the classic study, these were done at Princeton for a long time. And I've interviewed the people on my own podcast. First of all, I interviewed Dean Radin to talk about this stuff. I interviewed the scientists at the Princeton, it's called the Pear Lab, Eng Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Lab. The classic study is yeah. a random number generator. So this is a machine and it spits out numbers, a zero or a one. Right. And it's through a random process, like radioactive decay determines it, meaning there is it's like 50-50 zeros and ones over the long term. Yep. People, the experimenters do the same thing. They say, hey, Tom, I know you're far away from this machine, but I want you to make the machine produce more ones and zeros. I know it sounds crazy. Mm -hmm. So put your mind to making it produce more ones and zeros. Right. What happens statistically? Very, very small effect. There are more ones and zeros. By When you do the math, it's beyond chance. Mm. Tiny effect but highly statistically significant. And it's been like enough, they did it enough times. Over and, and over and over yeah. again. And it's this is conforming to this collapse of the wave function quantum physics experiment. Right. 
So the same study of the random number generator has been done in something called the Global Consciousness Project. And okay. Dr. Roger Nelson, who was at Princeton, is running this. Um, he's been great. He's endorsing my book, and, and he's he was at Princeton for a while. Yeah. He puts these machines all around the world. So you and I don't even know they're there. Okay. And what they do is they measure the flow of zeros and ones in these machines during times of high emotional intensity around the world. So like Princess Diana dies, okay. Y2K, 9-11, major events where we know people are kind of incoherence. Most of the world, a lot of people are focused on a certain thing. And they look at the behavior of the zeros and ones. Same thing happens. There is non-random- more zeros or ones yes. because of that? Yes. So they're saying that there's a, there's a random number generator in Princeton, in New Jersey. All over the world, set up everywhere. That okay. We don't even. We're not even thinking about them, but they're there. They're spitting out zeros and ones right now. So there's one in Russia, and then on nine because of nine eleven and all the turmoil that's caused that caused America. You have, well, however many, you know, hundreds of million of people like you know, grieving. That because of that, then you know, the next day or whenever they were testing it, there was fifty five percent zeros instead of ones. Over you know, over a long stretch. Basically, yes. Now, so why would that change? The numbers, though, well, because we weren't thinking about zeros or ones. We were just all feeling the same thing, generally. I don't think we have any idea. And until we start studying it more, we're not going to get it. It, huh. ha it suggests that some kind of coherence in thinking is having an effect on physical reality mm. in sometimes very slight ways. An argument I've heard is, well, why should we care about this if it's very slight? Mm -hmm. And it's just we need statistics to show that it's real. I, I don't buy that argument at all. Right. Um, first of all, if we look back at in, the, in around 1900, the scientists of that time thought they knew everything. And they were like, oh, we're just going to we just need to figure out the final decimal points. And then we've got all science figured out. Lord Kelvin, who was one of the dominant figures in science, yeah. he said, we've got it all figured out except two clouds. And those clouds were these little tiny anomalies they couldn't figure out. Mm -hmm. Those turned into quantum physics and Einstein's general relativity. Those two little anomalies. Yeah. We've got some little anomalies. This is just one we talked about, and I've got many chapters on it. Yeah. The other argument is, well, why, why does a, a large effect, why does it have to be large? I mean, the Ebola virus is microscopic. Right. Should we not care about and it? It can because make a big impact. Yeah. Make a big impact. So do you, so maybe circling back then too, like, all right, if you think, I know you're not making the claim that that consciousness necessarily can affect reality. I, I think you're being conservative yeah, on that, you no, said. I, I, do I you think, think like? I think it does. It has an effect on reality. But, but scientifically, you're, you said you're being conservative just because the, you said the research isn't there yet. But you believe it. So do you think, like, are you using that in your day-to-day -day somehow? Like, are you thinking about things and, like, you're testing it and you're saying, like, man, I want, like, you know, I'm going to think my book into becoming a bestseller? Or, like, are you using it in that way? It's a great question. So I, I don't think it's fully understood how this works. But yeah. I think at the very least... Consciousness has an effect on physical reality. The yeah. extent to which that happens and how and how it works, I don't know. So if we wanted to be conservative, it yeah. cannot hurt <laughs> to think about things in the way that you want them to happen. I, I agree. It can't. There's no downside to that. Right. And there's potential upside. Yeah. If you talk to someone else who's very into the law of attraction, they would say, absolutely, you will make think your own reality happen. Right. I, I don't know, but it can't hurt. So you are doing that type of stuff. I'm absolutely, I'm, I'm very life. aware of how I think about things. Mm. And also if we think about our own health, I mean, our body's physical. And if our mind yeah. is affecting the physical, then we need to be thinking about how our, this is a, a medical revolution. I mean, how many stories are there out there that like, 
I mean, I've I had none have happened to me, but I've heard of like doctor gives you three months to live, or they say there's a story I heard once that was a woman. It was actually it was a guy's mother who went into the hospital and you know they were trying to figure out what was wrong with her. And you know, long story short, the doctor told the guy that you know your mom has cancer; she has three months left to live. And he said, "You don't, you do not tell her that." Like, and he like every time the doctor went in, he would like not never let him tell his mother that because once she you know heard that, she would internalize it; she'd die three months later. That's what he thought, and he never let the doctor tell her that, which is probably against some sort of law. But then you know she ended up living for twelve years after that, and I think. There's a very strong reality of someone says you have three mm-hmm. months left to live on that 90th day. You might be you might be a goner. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just like I've heard many stories like yeah. that too. It's hard to deny that, and it's hard even and on the positive side, people that say, you know, Jim Carrey who writes himself a check for whatever five million dollars, like ten years later mm-hmm. on the day, you know, gets that contract for uh, for his movie, or you know, there's so many different examples, but. There's too many where you have to admit that there's something going on. And, like, if you're not using it to your advantage, then I think you're missing out on a pretty big mental, you know, advantage I, you can have. On I people. agree with you. And I don't think it's something that we're taught. No, it's certainly not, not traditional education. Of no. Like, you know, your mind is affecting your reality. Yeah. But I, I think there's a lot of evidence which suggests at the very least the mind has a minor effect on reality. Yeah. And in the best case, it might have a bigger effect. And I show some examples in the book of of more extreme cases of mind-affecting matter. Right. Not as well-tested. Right. But we need to be open to it, I think. And if consciousness is the basis of reality and we're just living in consciousness, then, of course, consciousness, are, the way our mind works, is going to affect the physical form. Right. Because it is the basis of the physical. Right. It's Again, it's, it's, it's not an anomaly. It's not paranormal if we think of consciousness as the stream. Right. It's only paranormal if consciousness is produced by the brain and limited to the brain and body. Interesting. And that's what I – throughout the book, there are all these phenomena that I talk about. There's another one we should talk about. All right. Remote viewing. So this What's is, that? So it, I had never heard of it either. Okay. And maybe many of your listeners are not familiar with it. It's the ability to perceive at a distance, meaning you're sitting here and someone has a, a target in like they draw out some picture in Africa and place it somewhere and people are able to send their minds or access whatever part of the stream in Africa and draw it out and no. they can do it in the past, present and future. Wait, the, wait, wait. Someone has the picture in Africa. A person and... is sitting in an electrically shielded room somewhere in okay. Washington, D.C. or not electrically shielded, whatever, and they are able to go into a trance and perceive what is there without their eyes because obviously their eyes are, are in D.C. Right. And this picture is in Africa. And what they are able to do it in the past, present, and future. So in some cases, they can tell what was there previously and mm-hmm. what will be there in the future. Now, this has these studies have been done at the U.S. government for over 25 years. And this is what I was referencing earlier. Okay. Chapter four of my book, I go through the evidence for this. The CIA has declassified documents on the studies they ran on remote viewing that they were basically psychic spies because you can use this for government purposes in the Cold War. Documents in my book that I just downloaded off the CIA website, declassified. Remote viewing is a real phenomenon. Implications are revolutionary. We had a science panel examine it, and these are the results. Wow. So why, why don't people know about that? 
They didn't say they used it specifically in the Cold War, did they? They didn't say it's what known. they used it, it for? It's, it's known oh, now it that, that there was a program called Stargate. Okay. And it, the, what's controversial is whether or not anything useful came out of it and whether okay. it's any. But these documents have come out and you can read the books by the, the researchers at Stanford, the laser physicists who are running the program. And the remote viewers themselves have written books on this. And at Princeton, the same lab I was mentioning, they ran over 600 trials of this and got they got the same results. But is But these are... I guess maybe the to play devil's advocate, mm-hmm. these are one in a billion people. Like not everyone can be LeBron James playing basketball. Great not everyone can, you know, do that all this remote viewing and psychic and all these different you know, yeah. things you're talking Great about. Great point. Great point. They're just like in basketball, you have a distribution of the population. Right. Like everyone can dribble a ball, right. No matter who you are, right. but not everyone's LeBron James. Right. So we had the government was Cherry picking the LeBron Jameses of the world, the best people. But the fact is, no one should be able to do that if materialism right. is right. There should be zero cases. <laughs> yeah, there yeah, should yeah. Be zero. Right. So now that's you, fair. Now I, I want to talk about the everyday person, okay. the everyday person who's playing rec basketball. Because these are these are like naturally skilled people that you think that at least the like the phenomenon, the the cream of the crop. It's not people that have been raised to do this and have practiced for 30 years because how would you teach yourself to do that? So some people have been training and there are actually courses one can take to enhance these abilities. And it comes down to meditation and kind of, if you think of the brain as an antenna, it's like quieting whatever's disrupting the signal. Okay. So meditation is is big. Russell Targ, who was one of the laser physicists, he talks about quieting the monkey mind. When you train these remote viewers, that's what he'd have them do. Um, But it's something that everyone theoretically can do. Okay. And some people might just be better configured for reasons we don't understand. Like maybe their brain, their antenna brain is set up in a way that allows them to do this better. We don't know. Okay. We need to be looking at this. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. We need to study this. Right. Because we could enhance all kinds of things if, you know, an everyday person could do it. Okay. But let's go get to, to that. But let's go to everyday, everyday psychic abilities. Okay. Where you and I might be able to have results like this. Are you reading my mind right now? Well, we're going to be talking about telepathy, so that was it's funny that you say that. Yeah. So okay. chapter chapter 5 of my book is on telepathy, which is mind to mind communication. Yeah, yeah. And this there are studies that's called the Gonsfeld experiment. This has been replicated over many decades, and when you put the results together of all these different experimenters, you have strong results. And this is the basic design. Okay. These are everyday people. These yep. are not superstars. I'm sitting in a room with headphones on listening to relaxing music with the experimenters they're like flashing lights the point is to get the person into a hyper relaxed state okay almost hypnotic so i'm just chilling out tom you're in another room and the experimenters give you a picture to look at they don't tell me what the picture is but they say hey tom i know it's crazy but i want you to mentally send an image of this picture to mark's mind in that other room so you're sitting there like sending this image to me and I don't have the same, like, calming music. I'm just, like, sitting there. Right. Okay. The, the purpose of the calming music is that theoretically Quiet one is, yes, is in a better, more receptive state. Okay. Theoretically. So you're sending me this picture, and then after a while it stops. I am shown four pictures. I don't know which one you were looking at. And they say, hey, Mark, which one was Tom sending to you mentally? And I'm like, hmm, I don't know. That one. You would guess that me or whoever's in my shoes – would guess correctly one out of four times because it should be totally random. Right. 25%. Right. What did the experimenters find over many, many trials? 32%. 
Okay. That's the that's statistically it's significant. massively significant. Yeah. From a statistical standpoint, that should not be happening. So it's how it, many times do they do it. You know, they've done so many replications of this, yeah. decades of it. Okay. And when okay. you combine the studies, it's one of what Dean Radin calls six sigma, where the odds that it's happening by chance is over one in a billion. Okay. When you combine it, I mean, it's not even close. Yeah. And six sigma is the standard that's used in all of science, like right. the Higgs boson particle, which okay. is one of the big discoveries in physics, won a Nobel Prize. I think it was like five sigma or something. Yeah. In statistics, it means, okay, this is not a chance occurrence. We're seeing that here in this Gonsfeld procedure, Okay. this Gonsfeld experiment. Got it. And it makes sense. 32%, that's like, oh, I think of someone and they text me, but it doesn't happen all the time. Right. If we were 100% telepathic, then we'd be reading each other's minds all the time right. explicitly, but we're not. Right. So it actually makes a lot of sense that yeah. we're subtly telepathic. Okay. And it would make sense why it would slip under the radar because you need this stringent procedure. You need to be able to run statistics to show that it's happening. Yeah. It's not obvious. Right. But it's a subtle effect and it should not be happening according to materialism. Right. So so what is this what does this mean for me and you? What is well, no no no. Let's start We'll get to me. We'll get to me. I want to start okay. with you because okay. you're, you've been so encompassed by this the last two years. And as you're being, been going through this and working it out with the research and the writing and um, all the experimentation, like what has this meant for you personally versus where you were, where, where you were a few years ago on a totally different wavelength? Great question. It's, it's, been a massive, massive shift. Right. And I think the things that have shifted me most are actually what I want to talk about next, which is this notion that consciousness survives bodily death. Yep. Because so these psychic abilities suggest that consciousness is not localized to the body. It's like okay. existing beyond space and time somehow, like a remote viewer is perceiving something far away right. at a different point in time. So it's suggesting that consciousness isn't what we thought it was. It's taken to the next level, in my opinion, in the next section of my book, where we talk about survival of bodily death. And there are a few phenomena that have been studied, okay. which suggest that this is the case. And this to me is totally earth shattering because yep. if we don't actually die in the way that we think we do, right? I mean, I think that I probably had a late Then life changes. Death. It changes in a huge way. I mean, it like, yeah. It's, it's massive. It's massive because I think there's this mentality. There's this assumption right now. Like you have a mind, Tom. I'm looking at you right now. Yep. I can't see your mind, but I think it's there. When I look at a person who's physically dead, I'm making this assumption, this cultural assumption that their mind must not be there anymore. I can't see a person's mind when that person's living. Mm. We're making an assumption that it, it disappears when right. the person dies. Okay. And what I'm say, moved towards is that it actually never disappeared in, when the person dies because of evidence we should talk about. And that, you know. But I thought if we're thinking about the whirlpool example, yeah. when the whirlpool, which is the human, yeah. goes away, dies, then that consciousness just goes somewhere else. So it's well, not still with that dead body, though. It, no, it's not, but it's still part of the stream. Okay. It, it's just like the, the, the whirlpool is dissolving and the water is changing form from being in a localized whirlpool to being just something else in the stream. So it wouldn't be, well, I guess it never is. In this case, if you're dead and I'm looking at your dead body, which I know is yeah. kind of gruesome, but like, I'm not thinking about Mark's mind, nor, nor should I be thinking about your mind now. Right. Is that? Well, it, technically. Sometimes I'm saying things and I'm not sure if I'm saying the right thing. So I'm looking to you for like, is, is that where you're going? Like, right? Because if we're all one stream of consciousness, we're all one big ocean of water, right? Yes. Like, 
I don't, I have my little whirlpool, but it's still the same. It's coming from the same source as your little whirlpool. So, so my mind isn't different than yours. You're nailing it. Yeah, that's exactly Oof. where I'm coming out on this. Yeah. So this gets to a bigger implication beyond, I think, this notion that we don't actually die, which is that we're not separate. Wait, wait so maybe I so want to close out the death. I want to close out the death. Yeah. So when I die, what happens? Okay, so I think the best what evidence we have, the best evidence we have, we can't, this is where it becomes not provable, but we have to infer things. Okay. So chapter nine of my book is on near-death experiences. And if you had asked me what a near-death experience is two years ago, I would have said, oh, well, yeah, don't people like see the light right yeah. before they're about to die because their brain like pumps out some chemicals? That's what I would have thought it was. There is a huge body of evidence on this mm. that is completely mind-blowing. So the most compelling studies to me, and we'll get into what happens because that is a, a window into what might happen with physical death. Yeah. But they're called prospective cardiac arrest studies. So this is where cardiologists and Dr. Pim Van Lommel, um, he's a Dutch cardiologist, has been the leader looking at this, where you go into wards, these hospitals where people have had cardiac arrest. And this is a physiologically brutal event. Right. Like the person is clinically dead. We know when their heart stops mm -hmm. that blood flow to the brain stops and electrical activity stops after a certain amount of time. So this is, I mean, you shouldn't have anything happening. You should have no memories. You shouldn't have any kind of experience. Right. And a percentage of people, when they interview them after they're, they're out, they come back to life, they describe this process of things that has happened to them. Yeah. None of that should be happening. Wow. And it's reported. And it's, it's been reported back since the Egyptian Book of the Dead and the Tibetan Book of the Dead. But it became more mainstream in around the 70s when resuscitation technology got better. Yeah. Because we're bringing more people back and they're all, they started reporting this. Right. Raymond Moody wrote a book called Life After Life in 1975 and he coined the term near-death experience. Mm. And since then, people have started to get drawn into this. So the University of Virginia has been looking at this in depth. And Dr. Bruce Grayson, who I interviewed in my podcast, he's one of the leaders on this. So some very credible people are looking at it and they're like, these people are dead. They've got no brain functioning and they're coming back with memories that happened during the time they were out. What do they, they remember like getting operated on, you mean? Okay. Like so in a this, heart this attack? Is, okay, so this is what they describe. There's like a process of steps. And not everyone experiences or recalls these same steps when they come back into their body. Okay. But the first thing is like they they experience unconditional love. Like it's a very happy experience. Although mm -hmm. a minority of near-death experiences are, are really negative and frightening, but it's a minority. Most of them are very pleasant. They're like, oh, I'm out of my body. I'm free. Okay. And in many cases, they have an out-of-body experience, meaning they are hovering over their body. Yes. Okay. Seeing things that happened in the room. The most compelling cases to me are what are known as veridical out-of-body experiences. Okay. Veridical meaning what they see is verified. So they're hovering over their body. They come back in their body and they're like, hey, doctor, you were doing these things. And they're like, what do you, what do you mean? You were dead. And then you can look at the medical records and they were out. Mm. I mean, Sam, Dr. Sam Parnia has a study in Resuscitation Magazine in 2014 where he looked at these patients and one of the patients came back with veridical experiences talking yeah. about, he's like, oh yeah, I heard this, this sound, shock the patient, shock the patient and describe one of the people. That was the defibrillator that was going off and right. they know the timing of when it went off because they had the timestamp and it was during the time of cardiac arrest when he was out. What about when people say that they... They go, because I know you mentioned like, oh, you see the light and whatever. Mm -hmm. How about situations, and these could be the minorities, but I've heard stories of people saying that they they might have seen some bright light or they saw 
you know, people might like they see the their past flash before their eyes, or they see the light, and then they choose like they make the choice, uh, some sort of conscious choice to like, no, I'm not ready yet, and then they go back to their body, and then they're like back in it. Yeah, that like, is what is that? That's what's often described. Yeah, <clears throat> is that sometimes it's like their own choice, but other times they're communicating with some being. Right. So Dr. Alan Huguenot, who I interviewed on my podcast, he had near-death experience in 1970. Yeah. He was cradled by a being of light. That's how he describes it, like this <laughs> loving being of light. And this is a hardcore scientist. Right. Um, and and he was he doesn't remember all of what happened, but mm-hmm. that he remembers that very distinctly. And there was this decision. He wasn't finished what he needed to do. Mm. In other cases, this to me might be the most mind-blowing thing that I've learned and I talk about in the book. Is It's called the life review, oh. where the person – is out of their body yeah. in this near-death experience. They experience their whole life in a flash. Mm. And this is the craziest part. In some cases, they experience their life through the eyes of the people they affected. So if you oh, harm I think someone- you were telling me this a while. Yeah, I probably, t- when we first yeah, talked, yeah, I probably yeah, told yeah. you this. But when, oh. so if you harm someone, you feel the pain through that person's eyes. And you're judging yourself for how you acted. Of, oh, right. I should have done better. So people come back into their bodies totally transformed after this wow. of, wow, I don't have a fear of death anymore. I hear that all the time. Yep. They become less materialistic because what mattered to them in the life review was how they treated people. It wasn't how much money they accumulated right. or material things. It was like literally, how did you treat the cashier? Right. How did you treat your family member? Yeah. That, that becomes paramount. So a lot of people get divorced after a near-death experience because values change, mm-hmm. careers change. Right. So this is a window. It doesn't okay. tell us exactly what happens when we die. But if we if we extrapolate a little bit and infer that this person was about to die and they decided to come back in their body because they had to, whatever, right. then maybe that's like the first part of what happens when the physical body dies. Okay. That consciousness is going through this phase. What happens after that, we can we can talk to psychics who can claim to channel that information. I don't know if we can verify it. Right. Until There's someone, probably no way to really verify it yet. I don't think there is. But the near-death experience where you have a person with no brain functioning and they have conscious memories during that time, that should absolutely not happen. But so do you think personally that if you were to die today and you don't have a near-death, you you actually stay dead? Like, is there any sort of, like, afterlife, quote-unquote, you know, heaven, reincarnation, whatever people mm-hmm. believe in, or is it literally everything that was you and your mind and your values and your thoughts kind of just dissipates into the whirlpool of the world's consciousness? I think that it's it's both, that mm. I'm at least most compelled in this moment by that it's both. Okay. Where it does dissolve into the broader consciousness, but what's happening during that dissolution process, right. how does it transition from this physical body into whatever else is happening? I don't know. Mm. I don't know what's happening. Interesting. So there, I have another chapter on, on after-death communications. Okay. So these are what's known as psychic mediums. These are yeah, people yeah. that claim they can talk to dead people. And in some cases, so they're anecdotal cases back from the I'm 1800s. skeptical of that. Yeah, me too. I mean, until I started looking at it. <laughs> and there's some crazy cases from the 1800s, like William James from Harvard was looking at it and studied these people. And they had detectives, in one case, following a woman around to make sure she couldn't get information. And she would be given a name and she was pulling stuff up that she shouldn't know. Recently, there have been controlled studies, five levels of blinding at the Winbridge Research Center where the researcher gives the first name of the dead person to the medium over the phone. 
and then they have independent raters rate the answers about specific questions about this person. Okay. And what they find statistically is that the person over the phone, the medium, is able to get non-chance information that they shouldn't have known about the dead person. There have been two peer-reviewed journal studies on the on what Dr. Julie Beichel has done. Like they would say, like that Mark, uh, you know, whatever. He grew up in Boston and he lived there for eight years and like just like random basic information facts. about ba- yeah they ask a series of basic questions and they have independent raters rate how you know whether this is indicative of the, yeah. the person and what they're finding is that the mediums are able to get non-chance information that they shouldn't have gotten through ordinary means five levels of blinding that they've done we need more replications of this but it matches what all these anecdotal cases show my point here was in many cases mediums talk about what they hear from the dead person, right. the dead person's consciousness, right. which is typically a very comforting message. It's like, I'm okay over here. I want yeah. you to know that. I'm I don't know if that's real. Or whatever. That's yeah. what happens. All That's what the messages are that I frequently hear from mediums. Yeah. But those controlled studies to me, I mean, we, we got to look at that. <laughs> yeah. Because they've been carefully controlled. Are you on a mission with this? Like, do you feel compelled by something outside of you that is like, I need to spread this hmm. mission. It's a great or question. This statement or. Well, the, this notion of anything outside of myself, if we're just part of one big stream of consciousness, then there's no external. And that's kind of where I am, that there's no outside of me because it's, mm. there's one consciousness, <laughs> right? So this is a, what I just said is, is known as like non-duality, the notion that there is one reality, one consciousness. Right. And that's kind of where I am. So. But I know what you mean. Is yeah. there something, some like force that's pushing me? I don't know. For some reason, I feel very compelled to talk about these things yeah. and to write about them. Yeah. Maybe part of it is that I know what kind of change it had on my life Yeah. in thinking about things. And I think I'm way happier and way less. Well, let's talk about that. Yeah. How's your life been different in the last few years? Well, I mean, I think I probably had a fear of death without even acknowledging it. For sure. I think it's just there for a natural. lot of people. Yeah. It's natural of there's my existence is finite. So I got to rush to do all these things. Right. When that goes away, and it, do, it doesn't happen overnight. I wasn't this way like after hearing one podcast. Right. But it's the repeated li- reading research of all of a sudden you have this immense body of evidence that I wasn't exposed to before, and I can't reconcile this body of evidence with my old worldview. Yeah. And when that happens enough, you just switch worldviews, mm. and that becomes the new default. Okay. So the new, de- new default for me is like you know, talking to these near-death experience people or another types of research, which we should we should talk about children who have past life memories. From University of Virginia, we should <laughs> we should talk about that too. But um, yeah, so I think the fear of physical death to me is is much is, is diminished. Because yeah. I could see it going one of two ways. You could go with the one route of, all right, if I'm not afraid of death because of this, then you could say. You know, all right, then I'm going to be bolder. I'm going to live more fully. I'm going to travel. I'm going to do whatever. You know, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to do whatever I want. Or you could think about it as, well, this means literally nothing because whatever, you know, part of me that I think is my mind is not really my mind. It's kind of what you said at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, well, fuck this. So it's kind of interesting to think about. And do you think that you've thought, in both directions that way? Yeah. So what you're describing, it's a really good point. I was, the term I would use is nihilistic before when okay. I was a materialist of like life is bleak, has no meaning. What you were describing is almost like a form of nihilism that still conforms to this theory of consciousness of right. it doesn't matter anyway because we're just one big consciousness, whatever. Yeah. Where I would question that a little bit is based on 
a lot of the experiences described, like the life review, for example, yeah. it's suggesting that like, no, we're here to have these experiences and to treat ourselves as consciousness well. Mm. And to like grow through that process and evolve the broader consciousness through having experiences. Yeah. So at the very least, there is that little bit of meaning beyond none of it matters. Yeah. The other thing that comes up a lot, and this happens with psychedelics users, it happens with a lot of mystical experiences in meditation. Yeah. And these are all cases of reduced brain functioning. Like in psychedelic studies, there's one from 2012, psilocybin users. These are people who took magic mushrooms and controlled studies. They had enriched experiences, which is what you'd expect in a psychedelic trip. However, they had reduced brain functioning in certain areas. Mm. If the brain produced consciousness, we might expect there to be a correlation. You need more brain activity to have more conscious experience. Right. Same thing with the near-death experience. These people have little brain functioning or no brain functioning, and they have a hyper-real reality. Mm. So I forget exactly where I was going with this. Um, where, where are we going? <laughs> You seemed interested in that topic, so I went there. No, we, we were talking about – well, my original question was oh, oh, about okay. death. I got you. And, now, okay, and, and like meaning. Yeah. So in, in a lot of these experiences where we have reduced brain functioning and what I'll call a mystical or transcendental experience, right? what's described across all of them is this notion that the nature of consciousness itself mm. is one of unconditional love, quote, unquote. Right. And that's it. So if consciousness is everything and that is the basis of reality, that is all there is. Right. Then to be that is meaningful. Hmm. Interesting. And you probably feel a sense if you're if you're subscribed to the thought that we're all in this whirlpool together. Right. Really hammering home that example that you probably treat other people better, too, because in a sense, it's like they're you in a way, you know, and it's. And I'm going to assume that that's the case. And now I just kind of led myself to another question of, and maybe you don't want to get into religion on this. And if you don't, that's fine because I'm not necessarily religious, but I'm just thinking about, I was raised Catholic and were you, were you raised by a religion either, either direction or not really? Technically in a Jewish household, but okay. not religious. Okay. Yeah. Well, one thing that they say, and they might say this across all religions or most of them is that like... You know, God is within everyone, right? So it's like you are – you're as special because, you know, uh, God is a part of everyone, right? So if mm -hmm. you're a part of, you know, the ever being, then, you know, that makes you special and you are capable of love and all these great things. In, a, in the same way, you're saying that without religion, without a God, if consciousness is that same kind of – I won't yeah. use the word spirit, but that, that being non that we're all, whatever. we all have those great qualities within us of, you know, love and kindness and, you know, all these different things that yeah. make someone a good quote unquote person. I lean towards that now. Hmm. And in terms of religions, I mentioned this briefly because it's, I get asked this question sure you so do, yeah. often. What I found is that the mystical traditions of every religion, whether it's yeah. Eastern religions, Christianity, Gnosticism, Kabbalah and Judaism, Sufism and Islam, they are all describing the same basic thing mm. of non-duality, of there's one consciousness that we're all a part of. Yeah. Whereas some religions are what's known as dualistic, of there's me here and then there's divine that's separate. And yeah. We're, we're separate fundamentally. Right. What I am most compelled by is this notion that there's no separation at all. Mm. 
and that these things are like within us intrinsically, even though we might be overlooking it. And as a society, I think we're, if what I'm talking about is real, then we're majorly overlooking it. Yeah, that's crazy. Crazy. And so do you think, so what's the goal with the book? You mentioned that you, you know, it was something that people that you were talking to, friends, they found it interesting. It seemed like a book that was, whether you were going to get paid or a publisher or anything, it was a book that was worth writing because you thought it was a book that was worth reading. What's your goal with the whole book process? So I think there are levels of goals. And one of them is you touched on this very astutely, which is this notion that we're not actually separate and how would we treat each other? Yeah. I think we have a lot of problems in the world with how we're treating each other. Yeah, and they sure. stem to me from this assumption that we are separate, limited beings. Yeah. And that stems from the belief that consciousness comes from the brain. Yeah. That's like the linchpin issue. Hmm. So if that's not true, and I forgot, we didn't talk about it at the beginning. Science Magazine has called this the number two question remaining in all of science. As they phrase it, well, I'll tell you in a second. (laughs) They phrase it, what is the biological basis of consciousness? It's not known how a body can produce consciousness. Like if I ask you to touch your head, you can do that. You can touch your arm. If I ask you to touch your mind or your consciousness, you can't. How does a physical body produce it? The physical producing non-physical, it is not known. Mm -hmm. Okay? So this is a major question. That's an important point. Maybe the most important point in my book is that we don't even know the answer to that basic question. We all know we have a mind and an awareness. Right. We don't know where it comes from. We know how to send people to the moon and to do all these fancy things with smartphones. We don't know where our own awareness comes from. So that's mind blowing. Number one, the number one question, according to Science Magazine, is what is the universe made out of? And I think you might know what my answer would be based on our discussion of the whirlpool. Consciousness. Consciousness? Yes. And so in the preface of my book, I, I, I mentioned that. Where the other answer would be what matter? Who knows? Yeah. I mean, but this, I get into this also in the book. We don't even know what matter is. What's matter? First of all, it, it requires an observer. When there's no observer, it behaves like a wave. Okay, so there's this weird issue of you need an observer involved. Then on a more physical level, that's like more tangible, an atom, which is the unit of matter, is like 99.9999999% empty. Even though the table feels solid, it is mm-hmm. mostly empty. Okay. And the remainder of it, we don't know what matter is. Hmm. There's a great quote from my book from a physicist. He says, matter is not made of matter. <laughs> We don't know what matter is. Hmm. We have an assumption of, oh, I think I know what it is. But at the basic structural level, what what is matter? Is anything even there? Yeah. So your first (laughs) – so the first goal is to make everyone aware of the – because it's such – because – well, okay. Well, you said because there's so much turmoil going on in the world. I would say that's like the really ambitious goal of kind of social – um, I, I think there are problems, and it, this relates to world peace, and, and at a smaller scale, interpersonal relationships. For sure. Treating... It, it makes me want to treat you better because if I think that we're coming from the same level of consciousness yeah, it's, versus it's... I'm me, you know, this is my family from all the way over here, and you're from there, and we just are having this one conversation. That's a lot different mindset to have about someone. Very different. Okay. It's the argument for altruism. Mm. Altruism is a form of selfishness. It's right. actually the most, the highest form of selfishness mm. under this framework. Right. Because you're helping yourself when you help another person. Yeah. And when you don't help another person, then you're hurting yourself. If what I'm talking about is real. Wow. So it's a, this is a, this is upside down thinking is what I'm arguing. Is that right. right now we're totally upside down because that's right. not how we think about things generally. So the more, because the more I help you or someone else, the better we're all going to be. Yeah, it's like lifting the, the collective. Rising tide lift off, lifts all boats, so to speak. Right. 
So that's the really ambitious. Then if we scale it back a little bit, this notion of of death and not fearing death as much. Yep. That's a big deal. And then also around that idea is this notion of meaning, which is like the life review and how we treat each other. Yep. Taking steps back from that. Well, there's also something around happiness, which we should probably talk about really quickly. Yeah. But I want to get to the other things. Um, So I think we're taught, whether implicitly or explicitly, that happiness comes from something external of the next relationship, the next job, the next house. But it doesn't seem to always work. I mean, we have... We have stars who are rich and famous committing suicide or on antidepressants. Yep. So if material things, external material things made us happy and gave us lasting happiness, then we wouldn't see those things. So something's right. up. And I, there's a term in psychology. I remember this from my undergrad days. It's called the hedonic treadmill. Okay. The notion that we're like on a treadmill. You get the next thing. You think you're moving, but you're just in stand, you're, you're stay in place. You mm. might be a little bit happier for a moment, but it's not lasting happiness. Yeah. And the way I look at this and, and from like the non-dual perspective, people who think about this, you know, consciousness reality all the time, the reason that this happens is that we're seeking things outside of ourself when there is no outside of ourself. If all there is is consciousness, there's, it's all an illusion to seek something. So of course you wouldn't actually be happy. This is suggesting happiness is internal. Right. A lot of people have said this rather than external. So right. it's like align with the consciousness that you are. Focus on that. And that's where your ultimate happiness is going to come from. So how do you um, – and that makes sense to me. Like it's you know it's, it's all about the journey, not the destination. And that's – you know things like that have been said for a while. Then how do you balance that with you know yourself being someone that knowing your track record, you went to an Ivy League school. You were the captain of the tennis team there. You are uh, at a senior position at an investment bank. Um, and yeah, I'm sure you're, you're good at other things too that I'm not aware of. So you have currently, you cer- uh, certainly have some sort of drive and some mm-hmm. sort of motivation to do well, quote right. unquote, in the world. Mm-hmm. So like, how does that balance with the fact that you should be happy with everything and happy within yourself when you're still striving to do certain things in the world? I think, and that's a great question, something I think about all the time, if those desires are coming from something that's very intrinsic for mm-hmm. reasons that we might not be able to understand, yeah. of why you want something that's pleasurable. Right. If with the more that one is aligned with those passions, those like really intrinsic passions, what I've found myself and others, and then that person tends to be happier. Yeah. So the key is finding out what those like in, intrinsic internal drivers are. Of, and it might be different for me than somebody else. Right. I'm not an I'm artist. Sure it is. So yeah. like a painter that might just be painting a picture. Right. For me, maybe it's like doing this deal or, or doing a or writing a book. Right. But for finding that internal passion and then following it, even though it might lead to something that's quote unquote external. Right. It's coming from a different place. Mm. So I think that's the distinction is yeah, like yeah. this kind of inward turning. So it's, it becomes very introspective. Right. So that's – I talk about happiness a little bit. And then taking steps back from – this is really – you know, happiness and world peace. These are big ideas. Right, right. Life yeah. on a more practical level, our science needs to change mm-hmm. completely if what I'm talking about is right. We can't account for these phenomena in our current science. Right. So what does that mean for us on a day-to-day basis? What is our technology missing? If we're, if consciousness, if we like had an equation for technology or some technology thing, if consciousness is at C equals zero, it's just totally absent from all of our equations. Right. What if it's not zero? What if all of our equations need to change because there's this other factor? Hmm. It, it will change how we do technology. It's going to change how we do medicine. So I want to, I want to talk about this point. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. All right. hold yeah. on, hold on. All right. 
So why would why would that change scientific the way that we see science today? Because science currently is not acknowledging consciousness as as part of physics. Right. And physics is running how we do how we come up with technologies. Mm. But what if there's this factor that's being left out? What might we be missing? In, in our understanding of the universe, in our development of technology, because we've ignored consciousness as being a real factor. Mm. I don't know the answer because no one's, it's not being looked at. But this is what I'm arguing is that consciousness not only doesn't, is not a product of the brain, but it's the basis of reality. But why is it not being looked into more? Because it's not like, you know, there's clearly been research done in all these areas that you've found. Mm-hmm. It's not like you are personally, you didn't, discover the first person to uh you know say they were a psychic like these are things that have been talked about and discussed for a while so like why aren't people making a bigger deal out of this and more interested in it it's a really important question that's another reason i wrote this book yeah is that we have a situation right now that many liken to galileo versus the church Mm. where galileo had all this evidence in his telescope which showed that wait a second just because the sun moves across the sky doesn't mean that the sun is revolving around us. It's actually the other way around. Right. Certain clergymen didn't want to look in his telescope to see that evidence mm. because it challenged the worldviews. Right. What we're talking about here is bigger than that. Right. Because it's getting to personal existence. This to me is bigger than the earth isn't flat. <laughs> this is like it's the biggest revolution potentially. Which some people still, still which believe. Some people, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not. Yeah. We won't touch that. We won't touch that. But. So Dr. Eben Alexander, who's a former Harvard neurosurgeon and is yep. one of the endorsers of my book, he wrote a number one New York Times bestseller on his near-death experience, an amazing book. Wow. Um, where he was in an co- intense coma. So he's endorsing my book. And the reason I mention it is his quote on the cover of the, the first print is that this notion will make the Copernican revolution seem relatively minor in comparison. Wow. And Copernican revolution is this Galileo idea right, of, right, you know, right, right. of the sun is at the center. <laughs> yeah. This is way bigger because it gets to our own identity. Right. So I think because it challenges so many worldviews, both from a scientific perspective, but maybe also from a religious perspective, yeah. because it doesn't easily conform to every religious belief. Maybe some of them it overlaps with, but not all. Right. So between people who are in the hardcore scientific community who might have a PhD and have spent their whole career going down one track, yeah. it's really hard to be like, mm, I kind of missed something huge. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's hard to do. Right. And I don't blame someone. To, for for trying to to maintain the status quo, and the same for someone who's had maybe a, a spiritual belief. Right. Uh, so I think there's resistance to change naturally. Always, we yeah. always see this with a paradigm shift. So germ theory. I mean, that was massively controversial. Right. What do you mean a bacteria that we can't see can kill you? You must be nuts. Right. And then what happened? The electron microscope. We can see them, and we learned that they can kill us. Yeah. It's this is what happens with ideas. And right. Arthur Schopenhauer, I actually opened chapter one with this. He says something along the lines of every truth goes through three stages. First it is ridiculed, then it's violently opposed, then it is accepted as truth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're dealing with that. So I, I saw so this. a lot of backlash? Um, I mean, we'll see. I think I would guess that certain people are not going to agree with everything. Yeah. And I've, I try to frame this debate where right. I show people on one side in chapter one, all the quotes like Dr. Jessica Utz. She's the 2016 president of the American Statistics Association. She was commissioned by the CIA and Congress in 1995 to look at all these studies. Okay. And what does her report come back with? This is publicly available. I quote it multiple times in the book because it's powerful. She says, using the standards applied to any other area of science, psychic phenomena have been well-established. 
And furthermore, she says, we should stop arguing over whether the stuff is real and instead spend our time understanding how it could be real and like how to use it. Wow. And then you have people on the other side who say, there is no evidence for extrasensory perception. Right. The laws of physics totally rule out these phenomena. Yeah. So it is totally divided. I mean, someone's massively wrong right. on this, in this debate. So part of the reason I did it, getting back to your original question, is I wanted to expose this issue because it's a really important one that we have to get to the bottom of. Right. It's the number two question, according to Science Magazine. Yeah. What's going on with consciousness? So right. people, I think it's helpful to know it's a question. Yeah. It's helpful to know that we have a massive debate and we need people looking at these studies. Right. So part of the problem is if you're at a mainstream academic institution, it's, it's dangerous for your tenure track to even talk about these things. Right. I've talked to scientists. It's taboo. Who, it's I mean, completely it's, taboo. Yeah. One scientist told me she had to take she, her interests off her resume on her tenure track because wow. people said, hey, you should take this off. Wow. And then she ended up leaving academia, the mainstream academia. Yeah. So we've got we to get rid of that. Yeah. That's not cool. I, don't, I, I mean, I think in the, in the spirit of open science, we should be exploring things. Right. And maybe we explore certain things That's and find out. That's the nature of science, right? Right. Just to explore new avenues and challenge what's currently believed. Totally. Right. So science should be challenging it. And to, right. to say certain things are out of the question or impossible, that is almost religious. It's right. the new orthodoxy. Right. So we went from the church to orthodox science right now, in my opinion, based on what I've seen and what I've heard from scientists, yeah. is there's this reluctance to even look at, the, at this stuff because it's impossible and it's like woo-woo nonsense. Right. And there's no mechanism for understanding how it could be real if it were real. So why should I spend my time on it? Wow. We need more funding yeah. in this area. Yeah. And even though I mentioned all these studies, it's only because it's been built up over many, many decades. It's moved at a snail's pace. Yeah. And I would love to see more research put into this because I think we'll all benefit from the discoveries. Yeah. So how are you – are you planning to continue the – like your research after this book? And like I know you have a, your, you have a podcast coming out where mm -hmm. you're having more of these conversations probably with people that maybe some you know already and some – that could be new and you're, you're still learning, but are you continuing to learn about this and like try to take it to the next level and, and keep like pushing this sort of message and see, you know, what type of revolution you can kind of start? It's a great question. I, I don't know where all this is going to go. Yeah. And that's been that way since day one. I decided to write the book and then yeah. I got really lucky. I got connected with an agent. Yeah. He represents Eckhart Tolle. He did the, the Four Dummies wow. series. His name's Bill Gladstone. Yeah. I cold emailed him. Really? With sample chapters a few wow. weeks after I wrote the book and a proposal, and I wrote like query letter for Bill Gladstone, manuscript on the next scientific revolution. He responded that day and gave me an agreement. So all of a sudden I had this agent. Wow. And since then, I mean, you know, I'm not an author. I guess now I am, but I'm a business guy. Yeah. <laughs> I've had some, I've been very fortunate to have prominent authors endorse my book. I mean, Eben Alexander, the Harvard neurosurgeon, number yeah. one New York Times bestseller is endorsing my book. Goldie Hawn, the actress is endorsing yeah. my book. Jack Canfield, <laughs> who wrote Chicken Soup yeah, for the Soul. yeah, yeah. Dr. Irvin Laszlo, who's been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Jesus. I wouldn't have ever predicted these things. I and couldn't. you just reached out to these people and said, you know, this is what I'm working on. And it's a combination of people that I know have reached out. My agent has reached out to people. Mm. And then certain people have connected me with people. And it's kind of spiraled where a lot of people, like I'm the founder of Pixar, um, how could I have ever foreseen these things? Wow. So I'm trying not to uh, put myself in a box in terms of what's going to happen. I would love for... I mean, if one person hears this podcast, Tom, and is like changed in some positive way, yeah, it's such a win. Yeah, it's a major win. So, how, where else? Um, where else should we be learning about this? Like, should we be, like, obviously, you know, it, it's a given. You know, 
your book that's coming out and maybe by this point when people are listening is already out in your podcast but like are there other um resources that you would uh that you would point us to or point me to it's a great question so part of the reason i wrote this is to create like the one-stop shop if you wanted to learn mm. the basics about this for, it's written for a general audience i okay. really tried to simplify it yeah and that's helpful I, yeah i hope i hope it is and it, it goes through the basics of these studies right so i don't I don't go through the details of every piece of methodology, mm. but I have the sources for it. So people could use my book and then go to each of the sources that mm. they find most interesting. And get deeper into right? it. Right? You want to look at near-death experiences, go to chapter nine, see the studies I'm citing. You could do that. Yeah. So that's one way to do it. Um, there are some, a few institutions that are looking at this closely. One is the Institute of Noetic Sciences. I've mentioned them. Yeah. It was founded by Edgar Mitchell, who was an Apollo 14 astronaut. And oh, when he sure. was out in space, realized some of the stuff, started a nonprofit. And Dean Raiden and other scientists are there, and they're doing world-changing work, but they need yeah. to be better funded. Um, so that's one. Another, I mentioned the University of Virginia, the Division okay. of Perceptual Studies. Yep. They are doing amazing work, and they have some brilliant people. I mentioned Dr. Bruce Grayson, Dr. Ed Kelly. He's a Harvard PhD. He's also endorsing my book. He's, he's written two amazing books on this topic. He's been the lead author. One's called Irreducible Mind. Mm -hmm. The other one's called Beyond Physicalism. Okay. These are thick scientific books. Yeah. These are massive and they're, they're not easy reads either, but they are, it's an incredible compilation wow. of some of the best stuff. And I interviewed Ed for my podcast. These are really smart people who are looking at this. And so that yeah. would be another place to look. Look at what UVA is doing. Yeah. Um, I should also mention Dr. Jim Tucker, who's okay. there. He's looked at children who have past life memories. UVA has studied oh, this. Oh, you, you want to get into this. I, want, All right, I should I get want, into this because it's, it's let's so talk crazy. About it. Let's talk about it. 50 years worth of studies. Originally, Dr. Ian Stevenson, who was a prominent psychiatrist at UVA. Okay. Over 2,500 cases of little kids, usually between the ages of two and five, who start talking about how they died in a past life. And sometimes they have preferences that don't make sense, like they want tobacco or alcohol, like, or they want clothing that they've never been exposed to. In some rare cases, they speak- A two-year-old is yeah. saying that they died? Yes. And then this is how they died. And in, in the most compelling cases, it's so specific that the UVA professors are able to find the person that the child is describing. And I wow. go through some of the most compelling cases of this in my book, and I've talked to Dr. Tucker about it. And it's like, I don't know. We cannot explain this. Wow. Like one was a fighter pilot for the U.S., and he was the only person to crash in this plane. And this little kid is talking about airplane crash on fire and smashing planes into the into the table. And he's talking about the name of the of the plane, the kid, Ojima, the kid. <laughs> and they found a pilot that died in the exact way that this kid's describing. Wow, it's super hard to explain. The most compelling cases to me are where children have birthmarks and physical deformities that match the wounds that they had in the death of their quote unquote previous life. Mm. So there's one picture I show in my book of a little girl who has an extremely distorted leg and the pictures of her leg. She describes being tied in ropes and tortured in her previous life when she died. There was in fact a person that died in the exact way she described. And her leg has constriction rings. So it's shaped, you listeners can't see this, but it basically goes inward okay. as if there were a rope tying her leg, but there's no rope there. And that's the natural shape of her leg. And it matches this other person who died. That she, and she says, Grandpa, why did they torture me? Why did they do this to me? She's talking about this as a little kid. And you think that's mapped to, well, an actual they, case. they died and it's the same consciousness that... Right, or whatever, whatever that means. Because if we're all one consciousness anyway, mm. how do we know if they're not like psychically tapping into it? Right. Because once psychic abilities are real, we have to consider that as a possibility. Right. But... 
it it seems like there's some part of a past personality that is yeah. now inhabiting another body. Right. Now, this is where it gets really controversial for medicine. And this is what Dr. Stevenson and Dr. Tucker at UVA have talked about. We consider there to be two major factors, two, two factors at all in, right. in medicine that affect the physical form. One is our genes, genetics. The mm -hmm. other is the environment that we're in. Right. Genetics and environment should do everything. Okay. What we're talking about now is something that's affecting the physical form that is neither genetics nor environment. Mm. And it's affecting our physical body in some cases. We're missing a whole factor potentially in medicine. That's a revolution in medicine. Right. But that's not everyone, you don't think? Or do you do uh, Who think? knows? I mean, who knows? It, maybe it's more subtle in other cases. Like, we just don't know. I'm talking in my book about the most extreme cases where right. it's like, I can't explain this. But that should never happen. Right. It should never <laughs> happen. It should never happen. Right. That's very – I mean, that's the, kind of the definition of scientific fact is like this should be right 100 times out of 100. Right. We should and have a theory. 98 out of 100, then that's a cause for concern. That's a cause for some sort of red flag. Right. Something needs to be revised. Um, so that's a major change for medicine. How frequent would that be if you're the you're, you're the dad of someone and, you know, they're saying that? I mean, yeah. I mean, Dr. Tucker gets emails all the time of the parents now reaching out. All the time it happens. And not everyone's compelling, but that he gets flooded it, with emails. Wow. Jesus. Uh, yeah, I don't so anyway, know what the... <laughs> it's really hard to absorb. So yeah, yeah, yeah. For it's... your listeners who are hearing this for the first time, yeah. I will tell you when I was going through this, it wasn't like I heard one podcast and everything changed. And right. It's probably not going to be like that for you if you're new to this. Right. But it's if you're interested in this, it's worth exploring because yeah. the implications can be life-changing. Yeah. Um, and so the reason we were talking about, you were talking about resources. So I mentioned IONS, Institute yep. of Noetic Sciences, University of Virginia, Division of Perceptual Studies. Yep. They're excellent. So really, I would say those are the two leading institutions. And that's okay. part of the problem. We've got a little department There's within the med funding. school. Not enough funding. Yep. So that's another reason I decided to write it. If enough people read this book and say, wait a second, how is it that all these independent studies, can I, can I conclusively show that each one of these is wrong? Right. If any one of them is right, and I, I explicitly say it this way, if one of the phenomena is real. That's too many. It's too many for or materialism. It, right. And my reasoning is it is extremely unlikely that each case I talk about is, is delusion, bad statistics, made up. I can't reason that without evidence showing me that it's, it's wrong. Right. So if I want to apply the same scientific standards, right, yeah. I have a hard time coming up with reasons why every single one's wrong. And if one is right, that's like you said, it's one too many. Wow. So I want this book to be out there and people yeah. look at it and say, okay, we have to deal with this. We right. have to reconcile all this stuff and come up with some kind of metaphysical existential framework to make it work. Love it. You're thinking big. You do not think small. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's awesome. Um, anything else from the book or any, any other topics you want to? You want to we dive covered into a lot, Tom. Yeah, we did. Well, I want to thank you for having me. It's yeah, been man. A pleasure talking to you. You ask great questions. Thanks. No, I, I mean, it's an interesting thing to think about. And um, as someone who science is my worst subject, and it's not something that you know, physics and chemistry. They, these are things I do not think about in my spare time. But on the side of consciousness, or like you know, I meditate every morning, okay. and you know, I'm a firm believer in. Uh, the law of attraction and, you know, you can uh, kind of think and speak your things into existence and I use visualization and those types of tactics and I think that's really important, 
use visualization, you kind of gave me a look. No, like, absolutely. But, have to. but what you're talking about is you, you're effectively using these principles that we've just discussed. Yeah. You're applying this metaphysical framework of right. consciousness being primary and applying it. And that's what I would say to the listener that is more like, you know, everyone's different. And, and some might be really interested in the, um, like all the data that you get into. And even the people that aren't, I think the way that I would look at it is let's use the data as kind of proof points for like, this is legit. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm glad that you did all this work because I wasn't going to do all that work of research. But you can also think about it very practically and like use this to your advantage. And you can use it to, you know, like we're talking about visualization and law of attraction type stuff, or just like thinking about I'm sitting here right now with Mark and, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about him differently as a human being because of this whirlpool analogy versus if I just saw him on the street and I'm like, there's some random guy that I never met, mm-hmm. you know, because we're not, you know, intermingled at all. So it's just, it's an interesting way to think that what, you know, where the research nets out and there's a long way to go, I'm sure, and a, a big uphill battle to like, you know, I don't even know how a big science, scientific claim like that even gets passed and gets like noted as fact. I, like, I don't even know the process of that. I but don't think anyone living knows it because we've never been through a revolution. This there's break. never been, I can't think of one scientific claim. I mean, that. Earth like, isn't flat. Ha- I mean, that's the closest thing maybe. I guess. But this is to me way bigger. So right. we have no way of thinking about how a revolution right. c- like this could happen. It's right. a great question. I have no clue what's going to happen with this. Do you, um, are you a follower at all of Peter Diamantis? You know I'm familiar is? with his work. Yeah. Yeah, somewhat. He's, um, and the only reason I bring him up is just because I was thinking about, like, you think big, right? Mm-hmm. You're not just, like, thinking about this thing and, like, you read the power of now and then, like, whatever, then go on your way. Like, you're you're kind of trying to stir the pot a little bit. And he just has some great um, resources. Some of the things he writes and some of the things that he talks about are, like, what he refers to as a moonshot, where it's, like, everyone's trying to get 10% better and, you know, or make a 10% change. There's the few people that try to make a 10x change, or for you it might be a thousand x change, where yeah. you have to think differently to do. It's not that you have to work harder, although you might have to a little. It's just that you have to think differently, and think bigger. And um, you know, totally. it just seems like something that you're kind of in yeah. Tune with. And you're, you reminded me of another point that that listeners might find interesting, which yeah. is artificial intelligence. Mm. This is very much related to that. Yeah, yeah. Because there's this concern that AI is going to become conscious and take over the world. That's an extreme description, yeah, yeah, yeah. but that's the concern. Well, I see, I've seen videos of like, I don't even know what to call it, I guess robots that are doing a lot of human functionality and running and jumping and squatting and doing all this stuff. And people are starting to get a little freaked out. Like these things could... These things could maybe have a mind of their own, like some of the movies. People but, are worried about that. But the, would you say that? So is the not argument an issue? that the argument that I make is that until we understand if and how matter creates consciousness, right? Can we create consciousness through a machine if it's not coming from matter in the first place? We can create mm-hmm. a machine that knows when it sees certain things to shoot a gun at it. Right. Okay. So that's dangerous. There's no question that (laughs) we can create a very computationally complex machine. The question is, can we create a machine that has the range and subtlety of of human emotions and human feelings? That seems doubtful. That's the big question. So under your theory, it would be no. Under my theory, it would be until we understand the way in which consciousness interacts with matter. Yeah. Right? Because both of us are conscious right now. So there's some relationship. Right. 
And how does consciousness interact with the body? Like, does it enter the body at a certain point? Well, I don't know. Yeah. But maybe there's some way that consciousness could enter matter in a way that makes it conscious. I don't know. Right. Uh, until we understand that, I'm not sure we can create conscious AI. Mm. Interesting. Because it's not going to emerge. And like Westworld, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's this implication that the AI becomes complex enough computationally that all of a sudden it becomes conscious and has its own feelings and wants to take over. Right. And wants to do its own thing. I watch the show and say, wait a second, we are making assumptions about consciousness that enough enough um, computation can magically create consciousness. Yeah. And that takes us right back to the hard problem, the number two question in Science Magazine, how could that ever happen? Yeah. So I think we need to scale back the AI discussion and bring it back to consciousness. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I got a lot to think about tonight. <laughs> Um, well, I hope your listeners do as well. I hope yeah, this has been thought-provoking. This is awesome. And um, for everyone that's listening, um, as usual, in the in the blog, there's going to be um, you know the book link, podcast, mark site, everything's going to be in the show notes. Um, so I highly encourage you to check out the book, check out the podcast, check out everything else that he, I'm sure you're going to be doing after that too. Um, and and you know, let's have an end to upside down thinking. I love it. Awesome. Thank man. you. Well, I Tom. appreciate you. I appreciate it. Cool. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to that episode. Really hope you liked it. Uh, if you did, if you found any value, wherever you're listening to this, uh, please head on over uh, and give it a five-star rating, subscribe, review, whether it's on the iTunes app, whether it's on Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, if it's there. Um, really appreciate you. You can find me at tomalamo.com. T-O-M-A-L-A-I-M-O.com for the blog, all the show notes, and Tommy Tahoe uh, on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Find me on Facebook. I'm everywhere. So thanks so much. Grateful for you. Have a great week.